the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. I hope you had a wonderful Memorial Day in that you spent at least a few moments thinking about why we celebrate, why we remember, why we look back. We're going to talk in a few moments about the 100th anniversary of the Lincoln Memorial. That was yesterday as well. We'll cover a great deal of the news, but we'll also hear from Amanda Barrett. She's the author of My Dearest Dietrich, a novel of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Lost Love. That's coming up in the second hour of today's program. And I want to introduce Ellie Garcia. She shared the gospel with many people on TikTok and elsewhere. She was one of the casualties in Uvalde. We'll tell a little of her story, and we'll talk a bit about the Wesleyan Agreement for a Divided Methodist Era. That's all coming up in the second hour of today's program. Also want to remind you that this week, we are going to continue to give away pairs of tickets to the Maverick City Music with uh, Kirk Franklin, the Revolution uh, Tour, or the Kingdom Tour. Uh, It's also featuring Jonathan McReynolds and House Fires. That's coming up on July the 20th at the Moda Center in Portland. Throughout the uh, the week, we'll be giving away pairs of tickets right here on the Georgine Rice Show. But you can also enter to win online at kpdq.com, and there's a link to buy tickets there as well. So that's coming up, uh, and I'll just warn you, that will be in the second hour of today's program. So keep your ears poised for that. Well, a century after its dedication, the Lincoln Memorial calls us not only to memory, but to action. Yesterday marked the 100th anniversary of the dedication of Lincoln Memorial. It is altogether fitting and proper, as Abraham Lincoln would say, that we mark this date on Memorial Day. The holiday is itself a legacy of the Civil War. Local commemorations began in 1866 and 1868. The head of the Grand Army of the Republic, the Organization of Union Army Veterans, declared that May 30th be Decoration Day, a day to decorate the graves of the war dead with springtime flowers. Well, the Lincoln Memorial's dedication was a grand occasion, drawing a crowd of some 50,000 people. It was years in the making. The dais was dominated by the leaders of Lincoln's own party, which was newly ascendant in the 1920s. President Warren G. Harding inaugurated the previous year after a landslide election victory, was the featured speaker, and two future Republican presidents were in attendance as well. Vice President Calvin Coolidge and Secretary of Commerce Herbert Hoover, plus one former president, Chief Justice William Howard Taft, and the 1916 Republican presidential nominee, Secretary of State Charles Evans Hughes. Well, the other living ex-president, Woodrow Wilson, resided in D.C. at the time and was invited but sent word that um, the morning of the dedication that he could not attend. He was never much a Lincoln man anyway. Democrats would build a memorial to their own founding president, Thomas Jefferson, when Frank Delano Roosevelt came to power. Well, Taft, appointed to the Supreme Court by Harding less than a year earlier, served as the chairman of the Lincoln Memorial Commission from its creation during his presidency through the dedication. He presided over the ceremony. He spoke about the history and design of the memorial. 
whose construction took eight years and continued uh, during the First World War. Taft would go on as Chief Justice to oversee the construction of the Supreme Court building, another of D.C.'s uh, monumental landmarks. Unmentioned that day was that Taft and other proponents had only succeeded in getting the memorial built because of the 1910 downfall of the powerful House Speaker Joe Cannon, an Illinois Republican who had admired Lincoln but hated the idea of an imperial-style Greek temple on the Potomac and had opposed it for years. Well, the most honored guest of all was Robert Todd Lincoln, the only of Lincoln's four sons to live past age 18. The younger Lincoln had a substantial career of his own in Republican politics, serving as Secretary of War under James Garfield and Chester um, Arthur, and as um, ambassador to Great Britain under Benjamin Harrison. He was also dogged by tragedy beyond the deaths of his father and brothers. He witnessed the assassination of Garfield, was nearby with uh, when um, William McKinley was assassinated in Buffalo. Robert Todd Lincoln went on to become the chairman of the Pullman Railroad Car Company for a quarter century, retiring in 1922. The dedication was his last public event. He was 78 at the time. He had to to be helped up the steps. He was a year younger than Joe Biden is today. And again, yesterday marked the 100th anniversary of the dedication of the Lincoln Memorial. Klaus Schwab is the head of the World Economic Forum. He founded the organization back in 1971. And every year, the World Economic Forum hosts a massive conference in Davos, Switzerland, with thousands of world leaders, diplomats and experts on various topics, gathering to trade ideas on how best to cooperatively run the world. In other words, you. Well, lest this characterization be seen as overstating the case, Schwab himself said as much this year in the opening of the conference. The future is not just happening, he said. The future is built by us, by a powerful community as you hear in this room. We have the means to improve the state of the world, but two conditions are necessary. The first one is that we act all as stakeholders of larger communities, that we serve not only self-interest, but we serve the community. That's what we call stakeholder responsibility. And second, that we collaborate. Well, this is the call to action for elitists the world over. They appoint themselves and representatives of global interests without elections, without accountability, and then create mechanisms of national and international order to control citizens over whom they claim to preside. Well, Schwab himself has decoded his favorite term, stakeholder capitalism. He wrote uh, in Time magazine in October a couple of years ago, free markets, trade and competition create so much wealth that in theory they could make everyone better off if there was um, the will to do so. Well, to do so, however, would require taking hints from Greta Thunberg, hashtag Me Too and Black Lives Matter. It would require building a virtuous economic system in which companies abandon their core mission of serving customers and shareholders and instead embrace answering questions like what is the gender pay gap in company X? How many people of diverse backgrounds were hired and promoted? What progress has the company made toward reducing its greenhouse gas emissions? All of this extraordinary arrogance is predicted on a uh, rather predicated on a perverse view of how successful change works within decentralized systems. Uh, As Schwab himself acknowledges, free markets have generated more prosperity than any system in human history. But that's because free markets are not a top down imposition, a system created by conspiratorial um, 
Uh, groups in back rooms somewhere. Well, free markets were the outgrowth of centuries of societal progress, gradual recognition that private ownership was the greatest incentive toward work and innovation, incremental understanding that individual rights are the only alternative to endless conflict, step-by-step acceptance that the decentralized sources of knowledge are both broader and deeper than centralized one. One of the great ironies of the past several years is the gap between the elitist perception of themselves to the elitist, their solution fail because citizens of the world lack the will to listen to them. To the citizens, the elitists fail because their prescriptions were ill-founded. Yet, so long as the elitists retain their power, they'll continue to push forward their utopian dreams at the expense of those they purport to serve. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Before we return to the news, I want to invite you to join me at the Pathways Clinic Run for Life. It's their 10th anniversary celebration. That's coming up this Saturday at the Reflection Plaza in Washougal. There's something for everyone with a one-mile and 5K walk or a 10K run, along with the beautiful Columbia River Dyke Trail, and a concert from Mark Lee of Third Day After the Walk. It doesn't get much better than that. Registration begins at 7.30 a.m. I'm going to be the hostess for that event, Chris and Crystal from 104.1 The Fish, our, our sister station, will also be there. The walk run begins at 9 a.m. and there'll be fun for all ages before, during and after the race, including inspirational words. Well, food, games, vendors and live music by Mark Lee of Third Day. All of that coming up this Saturday. Pathways Clinic Run for Life, their 10th anniversary celebration. All the details at kpdq.com. I hope to see you there. It's going to be a lot of fun. Well, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau introduced legislation to freeze handgun purchases and a buyback of military-style semi-automatic firearms today, or actually Monday. If you remember, today's Tuesday. That's according to a press release. The legislation would prohibit future sales and importation of handguns. It would require all long gun magazines to be altered to hold no more than five rounds, ban sales and transfers of high-capacity magazines, and establish a buyback program for banned military-style semi automatic firearms, including AR-15. Says the press release, today we're proposing some of the strongest measures in Canadian history to keep guns out of our communities and build a safer future for everyone, Trudeau said in that press release. I don't understand any buyback proposals are uh, lawful since the government never owned the property in the first place. Mark Olivia of the National Shooting Sports Foundation uh, said of the uh, the program, what this proposal is, is government confiscation of private property. Well, Canada passed legislation in May of 2020 banning over 1,500 types of firearms after an April 2020 mass shooting in Nova Scotia killed 23 people. The legislation we introduced today is part of our comprehensive strategy to promote safe and responsible gun laws, invest in law enforcement to stop organized crime and illegal gun smuggling at the border, and to invest in communities to address root causes and prevention of gun crime from occurring in the first place, Canada's Prime Minister of Public Safety said in that release. Well, the regulations will be implemented in the fall of 2022, according to that release. Meanwhile, President Biden says he doesn't believe in proposals to harden schools against potential gunmen. That's a quote from the White House press secretary, Karen Jean-Pierre, speaking to the uh, press 
today. I know there's been conversation about hardening schools. That is not something he believes in, she said, speaking to reporters at a White House press conference. He believes that we should be able to give teachers the resources to be able to do their jobs. One doesn't necessarily preclude the other, but Jean-Bierre made the statement, the comments while speaking about the possibility of bipartisan legislation to address gun violence in the wake of the school shooting of Uvalde, uh, Texas, last week. The gunman killed 19 students, two adults in the shooting of Robb Elementary School. By the way, there are still two children in hospital. They are expected to fully recover. A bipartisan group of senators led by Senator Chris Murphy, a Democrat from Connecticut, was in talks on potential gun legislation. The Associated Press reported last week Republicans have advocated proposals to strengthen school security. And Murphy said he was open to the idea on Thursday, but apparently not the president. When asked about the gun control issue on Tuesday, Senate Minority Minority Leader Mitch McConnell told reporters that Democrats and Republicans are discussing how we might be able to come together and target the problem, which is mental illness and school safety. Well, Jean-Pierre, however, said the U.S. was not the only country whose citizens face mental health problems. We are the only country that is dealing with gun violence at the rate that we're dealing and other countries have mental health issues. So what's the problem here? Jean-Pierre said the problem is with guns and not having legislation to really deal with an issue that is a pandemic here in this country. Well, apparently the president is um, on a different page than members of Congress who are trying to come up with a bipartisan solution, and we'll certainly continue to follow that story. Well, in an unprecedented effort, Supreme Court officials are escalating their search for the source of the leaked draft opinion that would overturn Roe versus Wade, taking steps to require law clerks to provide cell phone records and sign affidavits. These are both private and uh, work-related cell phones. Three sources um, uh, familiar with the efforts have reported. Some clerks are apparently so alarmed over the moves, particularly the sudden requests for private cell data, that they have uh, begun exploring whether to hire outside counsel. The court's moves are unprecedented and the most striking development to date in the investigation and to who might have provided political with the draft opinion it published on May the 2nd. The probe has intensified the already high tensions at the Supreme Court, where the conservative majority is poised to roll back a half century of abortion um, rights and privacy protections. Chief Justice John Roberts met with law clerks as a group after the breach. Uh, CNN reported, but it's not known whether any systematic individual interviews have occurred. Clarence Thomas calls out to John Roberts on the Supreme Court as it edges closer to overturning Roe versus Wade. Just one example of the tension within the ranks. Meanwhile, the Supreme Court voted five to four to block the Texas social media censorship law that prohibited tech titans from deplatforming users over political expression. The decision did not evaluate the law on its merits, but prevents it from going into effect while the case proceeds in federal courts, which will determine whether it can be enforced. Well, Texas measure modeling a similar version that passed in Florida in May of last year bars Twitter, Facebook and other social media platforms from banning political candidates and from moderating or removing content based on viewpoint. House Bill 20 would compel platforms to disseminate all sorts of objectionable viewpoints to industry groups, which sued to block the law last fall on behalf of Amazon, Facebook, Google and Twitter wrote in a legal filing, such as Russia's propaganda claiming that its invasion in Ukraine is justified. ISIS propaganda claiming that extremism is warranted. Neo-Nazis or KKK screeds denying or supporting the Holocaust and encouraging children to engage in risky or unhealthy behavior like eating disorders. 
end quote. Well, the high court's ruling comes after a federal appeals court reinstated the Texas law earlier this month. Prior to that, in December, the federal district court judge ruled in favor of the industry groups and suspended the law's implementation pending further litigation, arguing that the First Amendment permits a company to moderate content on its platform. Well, the jury and Democratic attorney Michael Sussman's false statement trial returned a verdict of not guilty today after a two week trial. Sussman was accused of having lied to former FBI general counsel James Baker, whom he approached in September of 2016 with the flimsy evidence of a secret communications channel between the Trump Organization and Russia's Alpha Bank. He's alleged to have told Baker during a meeting at FBI headquarters that he was coming to him on behalf of no client while representing both Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign and tech executive Rodney Joffe. During the trial, the prosecution presented evidence of Joffe enlisting employees across several of his companies to search for connections between Donald Trump and the Russian Federation, efforts that eventually turned up domain name uh, system, DNS data, that compromised or rather comprised the evidence of the Alpha Bank allegation. Sussman worked with Joffe, the Clinton campaign and opposition firm, Fusion GPS to put together white papers drawing erroneous conclusions from the data and market them to the press. Well, despite an initial review of the data and white papers that led to their uh, thorough debunking, FBI leadership, including Director James Comey, remained fired up over the allegations and demanded that a full investigation be opened up. The results of that investigation returned the same conclusion as the initial review. There are some questions being raised about the makeup of the jury Uh, some with clear connections to the Clinton campaign, to Mr. Sussman, to other elements in the uh, decision making. Well, in other news, focusing on the high caliber target, President Biden says there is no rational basis for owning a popular type of handgun and appears to suggest a ban. We'll continue to follow that story with all the twists and turns expected in the days ahead. Meanwhile, America's neighbor to the north announced the most significant action on gun violence in a generation. Crisis up close. A GOP senator was forced to get hands on during a dramatic trip to the southern border and saying tech them at home or rather teach them at home. Award-winning actor Kirk Cameron blasted America's public schools for becoming breeding grounds for far-left progressive agendas, including critical race theory, uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones' 1619 Project, and gender ideology. The problem is that public school systems have become so bad, it's sad to say they're doing more for, for grooming for sexual chaos and the progressive left than any real educating about the things that most of us want to teach kids. He told Fox News Digital. The solution to the problem, he said, was for parents to take the lead on their children's education and teach them at home. To make the case, the award-winning actor referenced his upcoming movie, The Homeschool Awakening. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, Amanda Barrett. Her book, it's a novel. My Dearest Dietrich, a novel of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Lost Love. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, inflation and inclusion. President Biden on Tuesday will, or rather, met with Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell to discuss record high inflation before meeting with K pop group BTS. According to the White House agenda, the president first met with New Zealand's prime minister. 
uh, before meeting with uh, Fed Chair Powell to discuss the state of the U.S. economy. The president hasn't met with Powell since November when he announced his intention to nominate his intention rather to nominate him for a second term as Federal Reserve Chairman. The meeting comes as the U.S. battles the highest levels of inflation in 40 years and is expected to get worse. The seven-piece K-pop super uh, group BTS will join the president at the White House in the afternoon to discuss Asian hate crimes. It's rather interesting he chose them to discuss such a very serious and sobering issue, but there you have it. Putting U.S. rockets on hold, President Biden says the U.S. won't send rocket systems that can reach Russia to Ukraine for fear of Russia seeing the move as an escalation. Representative Brian Mast blasted the president's foreign policy on Taiwan, saying it's just uncertainty. Looking to elect real leaders, veterans launch a Green Beret pack to prevent another Afghanistan-style travesty. An MSNBC column argues there is no constitutional right to own a gun. Apparently, the Second Amendment does not apply. Saying they will believe it when they see it, ABC, NBC, CNN guests weighed in on whether Congress will finally act on gun control, calling this a different moment. We've had lots of different moments these days. In a lesson of war, Ukraine's courage against uh, Russia is showing the free world how to stand up to Putin and Xi. Cleared for takeoff, Top Gun Maverick. It crushed all Memorial Day records and gives Tom Cruise his biggest movie launch. Vice President Harris is pushing to prohibit assault weapons. The vice president called for a ban on assault weapons in quotes on Saturday after she spoke at the funeral of a woman killed in the Buffalo, New York grocery store mass shooting earlier this month. She called the firearm a weapon of war that was has no place in civil society. We're not sitting around waiting to figure out what the solution looks like. You know, we're not looking for a vaccine. We know what works on this, she told reporters outside the Air Force Two at the Buffalo Niagara. International Airport, referring to the series of mass shootings that have plagued the U.S. Let's uh, have an assault weapons ban, the vice president said. Meanwhile, Town Hall reports, so while most Democrats have targeted what they call assault weapons in the wake of the mass shooting, Biden appears to be setting his sights on handguns, two, which isn't the first time he's singled out one of the most popular firearms in America. Canada floating the aggressive uh, gun control legislation is no... Uh, accident either. President Biden is taking steps to forgive $10,000 per student and the student debt. Uh, Washington Post reports that the White House officials are currently planning to cancel $10,000 in student debt per borrower after months of internal deliberations on how to structure loan forgiveness for tens of millions of Americans. So what you have are people who did not have the opportunity or the desire to attend college underwriting the um, uh, Student loan debt of those with PhDs and will make significantly more money than they ever will. Um, let's see. Uh, after months of in, uh, internal deliberations over how to structure loan forgiveness for tens of millions of Americans, three people with knowledge of the matter said the White House latest plan called for limiting debt forgiveness to Americans who earn less than one hundred and fifty thousand dollars in the previous year or less than three hundred thousand dollars for married couples filing jointly. Two of the people also said it was unclear whether the administration will simultaneously require interest and payments to resume at the end of August when the current pause is scheduled to lapse. 
One potential, the Business Insider reports, uh, problem, one potential problem involves targeting debt relief based on a borrower's income. That would compel the Department of Education to verify a person's identity and income to determine whether they qualify under the relief program. But the Education Department doesn't have that information on hand for borrowers. The Internal Revenue Service holds that data for many taxpayers, but it's barred from sharing it with other federal agencies and private businesses. So how you would implement this, not altogether clear. The National Review points out this is illegal, and Biden knows it. The executive branch has no generalized power to forgive any amount of student debt or debt holders of any income group. Asked about the idea last year, Nancy Pelosi confirmed simply that the president can't do it. That's not even a discussion. Do you know how patently illegal something has to be for Nancy Pelosi to acknowledge it's illegal? Well, the Department of Education came to the same verdict, determining that the executive branch does not have the statutory authority to cancel, compromise, discharge or forgive on a blanket or mass basis principal balances of student loans and or to materially modify the repayment amounts or terms thereof. So we'll see when this comes to a head what actually happens. And activists attempted to vandalize a Mona, the, the Mona Lisa, there's only actually one, in the name of climate change. Well, the man, poorly disguised as an old woman in a wheelchair, threw a piece of cake at the glass protecting the Mona Lisa at the Louvre Museum and shouted at the people to think of planet Earth. I'm having a hard time translating how this conveys the message. The Paris prosecutor's office said that the 36-year-old man was detained following the incident and sent to a police psychiatric unit. An investigation has been opened into the damage of uh, cultural artifacts. Security guards were filmed escorting the wig-wearing man away as uh, as he called out to the surprised visitors in the gallery. Think of Earth. There are people who are destroying the Earth. Think about it. Artists tell you, think of the Earth. That's why I did this. Through a piece of cake at the Mona Lisa. Well, Talk TV says a climate protester who visited the Louvre disguised as an old lady jumped out of the wheelchair before trying to smash the glass protecting the world's most famous painting, Mona Lisa, which, by the way, is much smaller than you would expect, and then smeared cream across its surface, anticipating that it did have a covering. Red State points out that although the climate alarmism movement already struggles to... Uh, be taken seriously, this demonstration does not do them any favors. The activist should be glad that he did not get the chance to destroy the glass and damage the painting because he probably would have set his cause back years in terms of public support. Many are already concerned that activists are attacking the classical culture, so a man literally going after the world's most famous work of art only reaffirms that suspicion. Well, Black Lives Matter responded to President Biden's police reforms with tweets deriding law enforcement From that story, the uh, radical activist group railed against the white supremacist institution of policing, decrying its roots in racism and slave patrolling while attacking politicians who support our killers in a series of tweets Thursday following the president's signing of an executive order on policing reforms. BLM reported that maintaining a white supremacist institution like policing costs blacks lives. This continued um, commitment to politicians to support our killers makes them accessories to our demise. Sadly, however, the absence of law enforcement has resulted in an increase of black lives that matter, ending in violence. A biological male cyclist claims men have no competitive advantage against women. 
another fiction being peddled as fact. From the story, the biological uh, male transgender cyclist, Emily Bridges, said in an interview this week that there is no advantage for biological males competing against biological females. Bridges reportedly made the remarks in an interview with United Kingdom-based LGBTQ plus publication Diva magazine. Bridges uh, selected to participate in Britain's Cycling Senior Academy in 2019 is a former junior men's record holder in the 25-mile time trial and in February won his uh, final race in a male event at the BUCS Track Championship. (laughs) Championship. I can say this. Speaking of um, inclusion from the um, national uh, championships, uh, he she said everything was kicking off saying, oh, she's going to uh, race and she's going to beat Laura Kenny. I don't know why they're thinking that I wasn't doing that well. It's like they automatically think I'm going to beat a multiple Olympic champion just because I'm trans. Well, no, it's because you're male and most males have that capacity. Well, a teacher utilized unapproved LGBT flashcards to teach preschoolers. Well, the preschool teacher in North Carolina in a public school taught colors to her three and four year old students using LGBT flashcards, which uh, included a picture of a pregnant man. Uh, The teacher, who has not been identified, was found out to have used them on the preschoolers after a constituent of state representative Aaron Pear contacted the Republican about the cards at Ballantyne Elementary School in Wake County. Well, Paré uh, contacted the principal of the school to see if she was aware of the use of the cards, which show relationships of LGBTQ and also go through what uh, each of the colors in the pride flag mean. Meanwhile, the News Observer points out that the uh, Wake County Republican praised the principal for quickly removing the flashcards. I'm grateful that a concerned constituent reached out and that this issue is being addressed in a swift, professional manner at the elementary school. However, one wonders how many schools have not been found out. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in the early part of the second hour of today's program, we'll be giving away a pair of tickets to the Maverick City a concert coming up in July. More details a bit later. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, according to a Harvard poll, only 6.4% of graduating students identify as conservative. The survey conducted by the Crimson was emailed to all 1,269 graduating seniors and drew nearly a 40% response rate and found that 4% of graduates from the class of 2022 lean conservative, 2.4% lean very conservative. It also surveyed the students about what their political, uh, their politics were before attending Harvard and found that 7.1% of the graduating class identified as conservative before attending the college. Among the results, 40.7% of students identified as progressive after attending Harvard, compared to 44.7% prior to attending the college. 27.9% of graduating students identified as very progressive, which is an increase from 20.9% who said they were very progressive prior to attending the school. The European Union plans to pursue an oil embargo on Russia by the end of the year. 
The European Union said for the first time that it would impose an oil embargo over its invasion of Ukraine, taking a big step forward in an economic fight against Moscow that's already reverberating in global markets. The embargo would include an exemption for oil delivered from Russia via pipelines, an amount that makes up one third of EU's oil purchases from the country. EU officials said that they um, by the end of the year, the embargo would cover 90 percent of previous Russian oil imports. Well, they back uh, backpedaled on that just a bit. If we have time, we'll get into it later in today's program. The 17, uh, 710 freeway expansion planned for decades has been scrapped due to its impact on people of color. The freeway and the working class community's ills became the potent uh, symbol of a larger effort playing out across the state to stop freeways that shape, divide and hurt neighborhoods, especially those uh, with people of color. The Times found that more than 200,000 people nationwide have lost their homes because of federal road projects over the last three decades. Nancy Pelosi's husband was arrested for driving under the influence. The House Speaker's 82-year-old husband was arrested in Napa, California over the weekend on suspicion of driving drunk. He crashed his 2021 Porsche into a Jeep around midnight on Sunday evening. No injuries were reported, thankfully. The Speaker, who was on the East Coast at the time of the incident, released a statement saying that she would not be commenting on the private matter. Her husband likely faces misdemeanor charges, but was released after he posted bail. Beyond the allegation that he was driving drunk, he his advanced age might mean it's time for him to stop driving and hire a driver. With their tens of millions, there's no doubt the Pelosi's can afford it, and Nancy could finally claim credit for creating a job. Well, the NRA forged ahead with its convention in Houston less than a week after the school massacre in Uvalde, Texas. The National Rifle Association pressed on with a scheduled annual convention in Houston, despite a number of significant figures dropping out of the event. One noted individual who refused to bow to the anti-gun pressure group was Senator Ted Cruz, who delivered a stirring and timely speech in defense of America's right to self-defense. Immediately following the convention, the NRA board announced predictably that it had re-elected Wayne LaPierre as CEO. Notably, after Mark Alexander wrote critically about the NRA's self-inflicted wounds, including suggesting it's time for new leadership, he was flooded with response uh, responses from grassroots folks of all ages. Former NRA members and some previously major benefactors who vowed not to return if uh, until LaPierre is gone. Not one single commenter supported LaPierre. Forty seven were shot in Chicago over the Memorial Day weekend. They all too um, a predictable pattern of violence continued over Memorial Day weekend in Chicago, where the number of individuals shot surpassed last year's. A total of 37. This year, 47 individuals were shot with nine people dying from their wounds. Domestic and gang related uh, disputes were responsible for most of the violence with uh, innocent victims, unfortunately, caught in the crossfire. Sadly, this is nothing new for the Windy City. The weekend prior, 32 people were shot. Meanwhile, prior to the holiday weekend, Mayor Lori Lightfoot changed a citywide youth curfew from 11 to 10. Clearly, that change had little effect on stopping the violence. The Justice Department will review the Uvalde response as Fuhrer mounts over law enforcement actions. The Border Patrol agent who killed the shooter got a gun from a barber and sped to the school after getting a text from his wife who was inside the school. President Biden falsely claimed the J6 rioters killed two police officers. And in an inconvenient truth, Al Gore's woke firm invests in Chinese slave labor. 
Some Democrats are voting in GOP primaries to block former President Trump's picks. And the price of some agricultural fertilizers has skyrocketed as much as 60 percent over last year's prices. Inflation and gas prices are the top concerns in swing house districts. And Emerson College promoted a professor who publicly fantasized about massacring white people. Home of the Brave, Giants manager Gabe Kapler plans to skip the national anthem going forward after the Uvalde tragedy. NYC is offering driver's licenses with an ex-gender option because the city couldn't get anyone, couldn't get any more woke. And EU leaders agreed to a watered-down compromise on the Russia energy sanctions. The leaders gathered for a two-day summit in Brussels. They set pretty low expectations for that new energy sanctions on Russia to punish Moscow's invasion of Ukraine. And it appeared on Monday night that those modest expectations were fulfilled. While the U.S. and Western allies quickly came together on a series of punishing waves of economic sanctions as the war began back in February, the heavy reliance on uh, of some EU states on Russian oil and natural gas imports has made collective action in this, the uh, sector more difficult, setting the stage for a watered-down compromise. And Russia test-fired a new hypersonic missile. On this day in history, 1859, the Big Ben clock tower in London goes into operation, chiming for the very first time. 1889, some 2,200 people in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, perish when the South Fork Dam collapses, sending 20 million tons of water rushing through the town. 1879, the original Madison Square Garden opens at Madison Square in New York City. 1921, a race riot erupts in Tulsa, Oklahoma, as white mobs begin looting and leveling the affluent black district of Greenwood over reports a black man had assaulted a white woman in an elevator. Hundreds are believed to have died. 1949, former State Department official and accused spy Alger Hiss goes on trial in New York, charging, uh, charged rather with perjury. The jury would deadlock, but Hiss was convicted in a second trial. 2003, a police officer in a small town of Murphy, Murphy, North Carolina, apprehends Eric Rudolph, the suspect in a deadly bombing at the 1996 Olympic Games in Atlanta. Rudolph, who was also charged in three other bombing incidents in 1997 and 1998, had evaded authorities for five years. 2005, former FBI official W. Mark Felt steps forward as Deep Throat, the secret Washington Post source during the Watergate scandal. 2009, Dr. George Tiller, a provider of late-term abortions, is fatally shot in a Wichita, Kansas church. The gunman, Scott Roeder, would later be convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison with no possibility of parole for 50 years. 2014, Sergeant Bo Bergdahl, the only American soldier held prisoner in Afghanistan, is freed by the Taliban in exchange for five Afghan detainees from the U.S. prison at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. Bergdahl, who'd gone missing in June of 2009, would later plead guilty to endangering his comrades by walking away from his post in Afghanistan. And finally, on this day in history, 2018, the Trump administration imposes tariffs on steel and aluminum or aluminium if you're in Europe. Uh, Anyway, from Europe, Mexico and Canada in a move that draws immediate vows of retaliation. Well, on May 24th, 18-year-old Salvador Ramos did the unthinkable. He shot and killed 19 students and two teachers at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde. Such incidents didn't happen a generation ago. Persons who 
have aspirations, dreams, and social ties don't engage in random killings of school children. So what's happened in our culture that teenage boys have been marginalized to the point of losing their vision of a better future? Edward Bartlett says that when he looks at the listing of student clubs at his local high school, he sees young women in engineering, um, powerful girls in several clubs for LGBT students, African-Americans and Muslims, but nothing for boys, which points to the much broader problem that is referred to as the boy crisis. This term captures the undeniable fact that males are lagging in virtually every arena of society. In college, for example, 59.5% of students are women, while only 40.5% are men. In healthcare, the Department of Health and Human Services, where he used to work, sponsors multiple separate offices of women's health and no offices for men's health. So why hasn't anyone sounded the alarm? Much of the problem can be traced to the feminist movement that's spawned a pervasive female as victim narrative. The narrative neutralizes virtually every attempt to draw attention to the plight of boys and men. Given the fact that women now enjoy full equality in the eyes of the law, the only way to maintain the oppression narrative is to manufacture an ongoing series of gender crises. He gives several examples. We'll revisit the subject uh, on another um, another time. But it is um, an interesting conversation that we ought to have in the wake of recent shootings. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic here at the top of the hour. In the second hour, in addition to an interview with Amanda Barrett, we'll also be giving away a pair of tickets to the Maverick City concert. It's going to be a good one. So stick around. News and traffic up next. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Looking forward to a conversation with Amanda Barrett. She is the author of My Dearest Dietrich, a novel of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Lost Love. That's coming up in our next couple of segments and a conversation about Ellie Garcia. She shared the gospel before her death in Uvalde. And we'll talk about the Wesleyan agreement for the divided Methodist era. All of that coming up this hour. Before we get started, though, I want to give away a pair of Maverick City Music and Kirk Franklin Annunciate uh, tickets. They're going to be at the uh, Moda Center for the Kingdom Tour. That's coming up here in Portland on the 20th of July, along with Jonathan McReynolds and House Fires. There are two ways for you to get tickets. You can uh, listen to the Georgine Rice Show, and we'll be giving away pairs of tickets through the remainder of this week, once a day. Or you can enter to win at kpdq.com. So you can win online or by listening. Right now, we want to give a pair of tickets away to our third caller and the number to call 800-845-2162. 800-845-2162. Caller number three will win a pair of tickets to the Kingdom Tour, Maverick City Music and Kirk Franklin, bringing the tour to the Moda Center in Portland on the 20th of July. Again, along with Jonathan McReynolds and House Fires. If you are not caller number three, you can enter to win online at kpdq.com. And also all the details on how to buy and where to buy your tickets can be found there as well. Well, the Biden administration is proposing that K through 12 schools must put boys in girls bathrooms to get federal lunch money. Now, they have to allow boys into girls' private areas to obtain federal funds for lunches, breakfasts, and snacks, the administration announced this month. The U.S. Department of Education spokesman told the Federalist the Biden administration press releases from several agencies announcing this policy will be followed by formal rulemaking in June. 
It seems to be playing politics with feeding poor children, which is really unfortunate. The executive director of the Indiana Non-Public Education Association in a phone conversation with weeks of attempting to sort out these new demands with government officials on behalf of private schools in his state. Because of a school fees, uh, because if a school feels like they cannot participate because it's in conflict with their mission or values, if a religious exemption is not granted, you're taking away a program that's feeding low-income kids. Well, before many schools shut down in response to COVID-19, the National School Lunch Program fed nearly 30 million kids every school day and approximately 100,000 public and private schools and residential care facilities. Well, under this new demand, establishments... Um, that accept any federal food funding, including food stamps, must also allow males who claim to be females to access female private spaces, such as showers, bathrooms, and sleeping areas. These organizations also have to follow protocols, such as requiring staff to use inaccurate pronouns to describe uh, those who identify as the opposite gender and allow male staff to dress as women while on the job. Religious institutions, however, qualify for a waiver exempting them from these requirements, according to Alliance Defending Freedom Senior Counsel Greg Baylor. According to the 1972 Title VI Act, um, he said religious institutions don't have to file any paperwork to be exempt, although they can if they wish. He noted, however, that public uh, publicly affirming a commitment to sexual reality by seeking an exemption uh, acknowledgement from the federal agencies may assist extremist um, pressure campaigns. He said the activist group Human Rights Campaign, for example, their blueprint for the administration pushed for um, uh, narrow, uh, narrowing the religious exemptions for multiple federal agencies and regulations and for the administration to out individuals and institutions who request these exemptions. For, so the battle lines, it appears, are being drawn. So bullies... Preventing kids from eating, demanding lunch money unless you do what I say, continues. Well, then Arizona Department of Education directs students to LGBT-themed chat rooms for children as young as 10 to discuss gender and sexuality as part of its student resources. The chat rooms are part of the department's effort to support uh, LGBT youths or those who are curious, and they were put together with the help of members and allies of the LGBTQ plus community, according to the Arizona Department of Education website. Now, the website directs students to numerous resources, including local clubs, guides for gender transitions and LGBT chat rooms. Both of the uh, chats uh, linked to by the state education department have moderators, either volunteer or staff, monitoring conversations, some of whom work for LGBT centers. The Gender Spectrum chat room advertises online groups for trans, non-binary and gender expansive youth and can be joined by video, audio or chat. Discussion groups are divided into age groups and facilitated by trained volunteers. Students 13 to 16 and 17 and 18 are encouraged to sign up, but the 10 to 12 age group uh, was at capacity, the website said. Gender Spectrum, as it's called, hosts free online groups for preteens, teens, parents, caregivers, and other family members and adults. The description of the chat room uh, said of the website, these groups provide you with the opportunity to connect with others, share experiences, and feel comfort of a supporting community. Well, the other chat room, which I won't go into details regarding, is also available. The concern is it doesn't require parental knowledge or consent, and some parents are unaware of who's uh, manning the chat room, what kind of conversations 
are taking place and whether or not this boils down to a form of grooming. So parents there are concerned and parents elsewhere are also concerned about whether or not education departments in their communities are offering similar services. Well, last year it was noted that the American the America's number one abortion provider, Planned Parenthood, was actively seeking to expand its business beyond being a mere abortion mill by also including gender transitioning service. Thanks to reporting from Abigail Schreier, it uh, was exposed that Planned Parenthood was handing out uh, cross-sex hormones to teenagers like they were, well, candy. The obvious implications are that Planned Parenthood is developing a new and potentially bigger revenue stream than it gets from providing abortions, particularly in view of the fact that Roe versus Wade may be overturned. As a Planned Parenthood clinic employee observed, trans-identifying kids are cash cows, and they are kept on the hook for the foreseeable future in terms of follow-up appointments, blood work, meetings, etc., whereas abortions are hopefully a one-and-done situation. End quote. In order for Planned Parenthood's latest venture to turn into a growing revenue stream, the organization has invested heavily in school programs. It's an obvious effort to groom or indoctrinate children. It's not only accepting, but embracing gender confusion. Well, through the development of so-called well-being centers, Planned Parenthood has, has been aggressively working with schools to create sex ed programs that affirm transgender ideology. This, in turn, seeks to establish what amounts to a transitioning pipeline for Planned Parenthood through which teenagers can access cross-sex hormones often without the need of any parental knowledge or consent. Well, coming up next, we're going to share a conversation with Amanda Barrett, author of My Dearest Dietrich. And later in the program, Ellie Garcia. She was nine. Her birthday, just a day or so away. She would have been 10. Before her death, she was all about evangelism, sharing the gospel and praying. We'll tell you more about her. She lost her life in Uvalde. We'll also talk about the Wesleyan agreement for a divide, a divided Methodist era. All of that coming up right here on the Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer is probably familiar to many of you. He was a devoted Christian, famous for his resistance to Adolf Hitler's Nazi government. Well, many people know Bonhoeffer's record, well, at least part of it, at least. What many do not know is that Bonhoeffer was actually part of a real-life love story. My next guest is the author of My Dearest Dietrich. She's a best-selling novelist. Amanda Barrett takes readers deeply into the life of uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer and his true love, Maria von Wedemeyer. Well, through detailed historical research, including photos, she takes readers behind the scenes of this hero of the faith and the woman whose love changed his life. Yes, there's a love story connected with Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and it's, uh, it's just fascinating uh, to read about. Well, my guest, Amanda Barrett, is an ECPA bestselling author of several novels and novellas. She's a member of the American Christian Fiction Writers and a two-time FHL Reader's Choice Award finalist. She and her family live in northern Michigan. But she joins us today by phone to talk about her latest book, My Dearest Dietrich, a novel of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Lost Love. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. It's so great to be here. Well, this is an interesting book. Now, obviously, you have written works of fiction before. We don't often talk about uh, novels. I should say you've written novels before. We don't often talk about them here on this program. But this is such a fascinating story and sort of fills in a part of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's life that few of us are familiar with. What inspired you to take on this subject and to write this book? 
So the first time I heard Dietrich Bonhoeffer's story, I was sitting around the dinner table, and my mom was sharing about the book she was currently reading, and that book was Eric Metaxas's Seven Men and the Secret of Their Greatness. And I was fascinated by the story of a pastor and theologian who stood boldly against the Nazi regime, a, ger- a German pastor, no less. And a few months later, I came across a quote from a book called Love Letters from Cell 92, which is the book containing Dietrich Bonhoeffer and his fiancée, Maria von Betemeyer's correspondence. And instantly, a question begged to be asked, and that question was, what kind of a woman would capture the heart of a man like Dietrich Bonhoeffer? And I couldn't stop thinking as time went by about this remarkable love story and wondering why it had never been told. And I've heard it said, if you can't find the book you want to read, write it. And after a lot of prayer, that's exactly what I decided to do. Well, where do you begin in taking up a book like that? And obviously, you mentioned there is a book of the letters that he had written to her. But to learn more about her, where do you begin? Well, the book Love Letters from Cell 92 was the foremost research about Maria because not a lot has been told or written about her. The very first biography about Dietrich Bonhoeffer was written by his friend Eberhard Detka, and it was over a thousand pages long, and Maria was mentioned on only four of them, which was astonishing to me because she played such a great role in Dietrich's um, final years. And so Love Letters from Cell 92 is my foremost resource. I also was able to... I found a book that was written in German that was about Dietrich and Maria, and I, so I discovered that. And one of my favorite resources about Maria was actually an interview that she did in 1974 for Malcolm Luggridge's documentary, A Third Testament. And though she was very reticent in speaking about Dietrich, she actually did sat down with Malcolm Luggridge and did this interview. And to me, that was incredible because we don't have mm-hmm. any video footage, so to speak, of Dietrich, but we have this interview with Maria, and she sharing what it was like to discover that her fiancé, they didn't know where he'd been taken. And so she goes to Flossenburg concentration camp in the waning days of the war, and she's looking for him, and she's carrying a heavy suitcase. And at the concentration camp, they have no information for her. But it was at Flossenburg concentration camp where Dietrich would be executed by hanging in April, just a few months after she was there. Well, it had to have been a traumatizing event to have fallen in love with someone who, for the bulk of their relationship, was in danger, and then ultimately to lose him to the Nazi regime just a short period before the end of, of the war. Well, let me invite you to introduce our audience to uh, to her and to tell us more about her life before her relationship with Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Well, I love talking about Maria because, like I said, she for a very long time she was this hidden figure in Dietrich Bonhoeffer's life whom a lot of people knew very little about. Um, Maria was the third of seven children, and she was from an upper-class family in Pomerania, Prussia. Her father was very anti-Nazi at a time when everyone was going right along with what Hitler was doing, and her, but her father actually even refused to hang a swastika on his property. And her uncle and cousin, Henning von Treskow and Fabian von Schlabendorf, were very key in the resistance and conspiracy. So she came from this family, this group of people who were all very devoted to God and were thinking things through versus going blindly along with the masses. And so when Dietrich met Maria in the summer of 1942 at the home of Maria's grandmother, Maria was 18 and Dietrich was 36. So there's right from the get-go, there's this obstacle, this age difference. Mm-hmm. But 
as Dietrich and Maria, they spent an evening together at Maria's grandmother's house. There was this connection between them, a friendship between them, and even this attraction that Dietrich had not felt for another woman. Um, there was one woman in his life earlier, but he really, this was really almost the first time he was experiencing this attraction to this woman at such a unlikely time in his life for him to experience it. And Maria was so incredible. She was very independent and free thinking and she wanted to study mathematics at a time when German women were supposed to marry and have large families for the furtherance of the Reich. And so I just, I loved studying her and loved discovering who she was. She loved those around her fiercely and was very close to her father and her brother, Max, both of whom were killed within months of each other just shortly after she met Dietrich. Now, that was one of the obstacles, the age difference between the two, but certainly the timing of this relationship. They spent really very little time together. Most of their relationship was long distance or, or through letters. And, of course, there's uh, the war that's uh, that's breaking out there as well. And Germany is at the, the heart of all of that. Talk about some of the difficulties and why their relationship still happened despite those difficulties. Oh, the difficulties these two faced, wow, yes. In many ways, their relationship should have been impossible until it wasn't. One of them was that after Maria's brother's death, Maria's mother found out that Maria's grandmother had been doing matchmaking between Dietrich and Maria because Maria was spending time with her grandmother in Berlin, and Maria's grandmother was very keen on the idea of getting her granddaughter married off to someone whom she looked up to as much as she looked up to Dietrich. And but Maria's mother was discouraging them from pursuing a future be- with each other because she didn't want Maria to become involved with a man whose true activities were shrouded in such danger. And so after they became engaged in January of 1943, but Dietrich and Maria didn't see each other again until that June, until after Dietrich has been imprisoned in Tegel. But what was fascinating to me is on April 5th, the very day of Dietrich's arrest, this, this sense of unease comes over Maria, and she writes this letter to Dietrich in her diary, and she writes, Dear Dietrich, has something bad happened? I'm afraid it's something very bad. And she, so Maria was sensing deeply that something had happened to Dietrich, and indeed it had. On that very day was the day that he was arrested. Hmm. Now, she was uh, profoundly uh, deep in her own faith, and uh, being connected with someone who was standing firm against the Nazi regime because of his faith. Um, how did that impact the, the, her life of faith, uh, the challenges of staying connected with Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, the culture around her, and knowing that he was in danger and there was a possibility that that relationship would not uh, result in uh, them having the opportunity to come together as a, a couple that, that wanted to marry? Well, both of them did deeply struggle, especially as Dietrich was in prison in Tegel and months went on and on and he wasn't being released. At first, they thought he was going to be released rather quickly, but his trial kept getting dragged out. And so they kept waiting and waiting. And Maria started to suffer physically. She started to suffer um, like almost like a nervous breakdown is what she went through because she was, they really, they deeply wanted to share this future together. And Dietrich didn't want, he didn't set out to be a martyr. And in the end, that was Mm -hmm. what it came down to. But that wasn't what he set out to do. He wanted to marry the woman he loved. He wanted to have a future with her. And one of the things that I include in the book is a poem that Dietrich wrote about this separation entitled The Past. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer had wrote several poems in prison, and this is one of them. And I include portions of it in the novel. It's absolutely beautiful. It's this tribute to how much he loves her, how hard it is to be separated from her. 
he was a very reserved person, and it's one of the times when he lets all of those barriers fall and just shows the way he truly feels about her. Mm. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation. Again, we're talking this afternoon about a fascinating book. It's simply titled My Dearest Dietrich, a novel of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's love, uh, or rather lost love. She stays uh, true and faithful to the story itself, and I think for those of you who uh, believe uh, you know something about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. This is a glimpse into another aspect of his life that I think will reinforce your regard for him and certainly the woman that he loved. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Amanda Barrett. She is the author of many novels. Her latest is a novel about uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's lost love titled My Dearest Dietrich. And you have the opportunity to learn more about uh, his love for this young woman who was uh, significantly younger than he, but also about her and what kind of remarkable woman would have captured his heart and the impact of events that were taking uh, taking place around them during this time. Well, tell us about some of the other key characters of the book and how they played a part in Dietrich and Maria's story. You mentioned that uh, there was a bit of matchmaking going on early on, but who are some of the other characters? to research was Dietrich's um, brother-in-law, Hans von Denani, because Hans is the one who got Dietrich, a pastor, involved in the conspiracy. Hans worked for the Abwehr, which was German military intelligence, and he, very early on, the Bonhoeffer family, was in the know about what was going on, the horrors that were taking place, because Hans was asked to compile a dossier of Nazi crimes where he detailed the atrocities that were going on in Poland, corruption that was going on in the high Nazi officials, and so... After Dietrich returned from a trip to America where he'd intended to be there during the war, but he felt God leading him to go back to Germany to stand with the German people at their time of suffering. And so when he arrived back in Germany, his brother-in-law um, helped him to get a place in the ad there so he wouldn't have to fight in the Weimart at the time because he didn't feel that he could participate in Hitler's war of aggression. But he became involved in the conspiracy and he was supposed to be, what he did was he went to neutral countries like Switzerland and Sweden, supposedly to further the cause of the Reich, but in reality he was having secret meetings with people who were loyal to the Allies, trying to get them to pass on word to the Prime Minister to that there was this conspiracy in Germany and they desperately needed British support. You um, were able to connect with uh, someone that had been connected to Maria. First of all, how did you find him? I'm referring to Bishop Kenneth Kenner. And what was that like for you, having studied and researched about her life, uh, to meet someone who knew her personally and could give you some insight? A mutual friend connected us, and it was an absolute honor because I never anticipated at the start of writing this book that I would be able to sit down with someone who actually knew Maria. I actually had a phone conversation with him, and that was a great honor. He was um, her pastor in the 1960s when she lived in a town called Easton, Connecticut, and he shared with me his memories of her. He didn't know her incredibly well, but he one time she did sit down and talk to him a little bit about Dietrich, and she shared that how she believed if Dietrich 
were living in the 1960s, how he would be actively participating in the um, what was going on with the African-American people. He'd be standing up for them if he were living in America at the time is what she was saying, mm-hmm. what she told him. And so to me, that was just incredible to hear her her memories of Dietrich as, as well much as Bishop Kinnert told me. Mm. Well, that had to have been... Uh, very interesting to meet with someone who had known her personally. Well, in the notes at the end of My Dearest Dietrich, you say that Maria never talked much about Dietrich. Why do you think that was? Was it simply heartbreak? Were these personal reflections that she wanted to keep to herself? Or was this just more culturally um, appropriate at the time for a young woman not to speak extensively even about her famous uh, fiancé? Well, I believe that that goes back to that the fact that I believe we all can relate to that when something is closest to us, when something is deepest in our heart, we don't often like to bring it out into the surface and plaster it all over for everyone to see. And that was especially true of people following World War II. Maria moved to America after the war, and so she was very much focused on starting a new life there and moving on. And so she cherished Dietrich in her heart. They never had a picture taken together. They never had, she never had a a lot of tangible um, links to him. She did have the letters, but that was about it. And so what she had of him, those memories, those letters, she cherished and she kept um, close to herself. Through uh, My Dearest Dietrich, those who may not be familiar with him will become better acquainted with uh, with him and his important work. Was there anything about him that you learned as in the process of writing this book about his relationship to the love of his life that you hadn't known before or that might be surprising to us? Well, I love discovering Dietrich, and I love discovering him not only as an author, a pastor, a theologian, and a man of resistance, and those are the ways that we know him very well, but as this very human, even flawed man, because I think it's tempting to consign heroes of faith to a pedestal, but I think that, and I think that we all could agree that that makes them distant and unrelatable. And so the Dietrich that I came to know, who I discovered, that though he lived out his faith and lived out costly discipleship, he was also a very human man who struggled with raw emotions of fear, who fell in love at the most unlikely time in his life and who who even fought that very falling in love. And so that was the Dietrich Bonhoeffer who became most real to me throughout the research and the writing process, not the whole person, not just this cardboard cutout labeled brilliant theologian and martyr. What do you think uh, those of us who may be somewhat familiar with Dietrich Bonhoeffer, even his love life, Um, or not, what we might glean from their story that is relevant to us today, not just their relationship to one another, but their relationship to the culture and the decision that each of them made to stand firm in their faith against what was a very popular movement among their peers. Oh, there are so many things. Bonhoeffer, he wrote, there are some very poignant things that he wrote, and one of them that I love is he wrote that only those who cry out for the Jews have the right to sing Gregorian chants. And when I read that, I pondered that for a while, and I thought, what if we took that seriously today? What if we said only those who speak out for the persecuted, only those who stand up for the suffering have the right to sit in church pews and sing hymns? And I just, to me, that struck me and convicted me Mm -hmm. in my own walk you know, am I living daily discipleship out? Am I living in costly grace? He wrote in The Cost of Discipleship the concept of cheap grace and costly grace. And costly grace is living like the cross matters. Costly grace is living that Jesus sacrificed all for me. I deserve to sac- I must sacrifice my life for him. That's the only faith to live. And that is the faith that Dietrich Bonhoeffer lived out daily. And it's the faith that I believe we all as Christians should be seeking toward. And he is a wonderful role model for that. Not that he was perfect, 
but that he did serve God in a very difficult mm-hmm. time in history. What impact did the relationship that Maria had with Dietrich Bonhoeffer have on her after his death? Did she ever marry? Was she able to establish a, a relationship with someone else and, and have a family? How did this um, early season in her life impact her latter years? Well, she didn't discover Dietrich's death until the summer of 1945, and she did. She moved to America a couple of years after the war, and she studied at Bryn Mawr University and gained a master's degree in mathematics. And she did marry twice, but sadly, their both of her marriages ended in divorce. Although she, with her first husband, she had two sons, Paul and Christopher, whom she loved deeply, and. After her second divorce, she moved to Boston, where she rose in the ranks at Honeywell Computers, where she worked, and she became the head of her department in software engineering, which to me was astonishing for a woman at that time. I mean, that obviously just speaks to her strength, her intelligence, just the amazing person that she was. And Mm -hmm. she was diagnosed with cancer in 1977, and four months later, she passed away at the age of 53, leaving her sister, Ruth Alice, the um, the task of publishing her correspondence with Dietrich. Mm. How did writing this particular novel, being a novelist and this not being your first work, how did this impact you personally, um, reading the intimate uh, communication between these two um, very important people and then having the charge to write about them? Well, it was a very daunting task because we're dealing with Dietrich Bonhoeffer here. But in the end, story is story, and faith is faith, whether we're talking about faith during World War II or faith today. And so I was deeply, it was very hard to write the final scenes of the book because I became, I spent years working and researching on this project and to get to those final scenes knowing that Dietrich and Maria were never going to marry, never going to have the future that mm. they so desperately longed to have. It was It was very heartbreaking for me, but in a way... I believe that their story really, it speaks to the fact of what it is to be a disciple of Christ. Dietrich wrote that when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And though I don't think he meant that literally, in the end, that was what it came down to for him. And in the end, we as Christians need to be thinking, is that, am I prepared to die for my faith if, if that comes to it? And because he was willing to, we're still talking about him today, and because she was willing to love someone who had that kind of commitment. We still remember her as well. I'm so grateful that you wrote the book because you have a deep um, regard for their faith and you write faithfully about their relationship and challenge all of us who read the book, My Dearest Dietrich, to consider our faith more seriously as well. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Appreciate it. Again, the book is titled My Dearest Dietrich, a novel of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Lost Love by Amanda Barrett. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Like many of you, I have been looking at the pictures of the 19 children who lost their lives in Uvalde. I've been thinking about their families, their siblings, their grandparents, their uncles and aunts, the teachers that taught them, their friends who survived and wonder why they survived and their friends didn't. And I My attention was brought to a nine-year-old, one of the girls who lost her life. Her name was Ellie Garcia. Well, this little girl, she was one of the 19 killed by a teenager at Robb Elementary School in Texas last week. Uh, She would pray every night out loud, and she shared the gospel on social media before she died, about a week before her 10th birthday. Now, Garcia was nine years old, looking forward to her 10th birthday on Tuesday. 
when the mass shooting at the school in Uvalde ended her life. She had posted a TikTok video saying, hey, guys, I just want to give you a little catch up. Jesus, he died for us. So when we die, we'll be up there with him. In my room, I have three pictures of him, close quote. Well, her father, Stephen Garcia, posted the 15-second video on Facebook. Garcia also shared how his daughter loved to pray. He shared a photo that he took in January of his young daughter laying on her bed with her hands folded in prayer. She's nine. Caught by um, Ellie G. in the middle school, middle of her uh, talk with our Almighty, I love you, baby girl, and I love the way you pray, he wrote at that time. She prayed every night out loud so uh, we can pray with her. Uh, her father said, I remember this day we had uh, just bought a lamp that is on and uh, she wanted to sleep with it on. So she um, she aired up her mattress, gave us a hug and kiss and went to pray as mom made treats in the kitchen. These memories are all I have left, her father said. By the way, there's a GoFundMe page for the Garcia family um, with a significant goal that uh, they are fast approaching. She was born on June the 4th. This coming week, she was going to be um, 10 years old, he said of his daughter, Ellie. Eliana was such a sweet girl with a lovely and beautiful soul. She would light up everyone's world with big smile and big hugs. He adds that she will never be forgotten. We will always remember our ramen noodle girl forever. We appreciate all of our family, friends, surrounding communities, and everyone across the world for all the love and prayers our family has been receiving. Well, the suspect, the 18-year-old uh, male, got into a fourth-grade classroom and killed 19 school children. About 80 Border Patrol agents responded to the shooting, according to reports, not just Border Patrol, but other law enforcement officers as well. There's a lot being said about what happened, what should have happened, what should not have happened, and so on. But in the midst of all of that, while they're working out how this might have been handled differently, who's responsible Uh, Just remember these little kids and this little girl in particular who knew Jesus and recognized that one day she hadn't imagined it would be before her 10th birthday. She would be with Jesus. Well, she is there now with many of her classmates and perhaps those teachers as well. Remembering little Ellie today. Well, in other news, 64 scholars and theologians have signed on to a Wesleyan witness. It's a six part 62-page document they hope is going to reshape the future of Methodism, define Orthodox Wesleyanism, and ground more Christians in the story of sanctification and restoration through grace. This is classic Orthodox Wesleyan theology. As Asbury University New Testament professor Suzanne Nicholson says, she was one of the authors, the power of the Holy Spirit is greater than the power of sin. It doesn't matter your class, your race, your gender. God is at work among the faithful. And that leads us to a full or orbed devotion to who God is, end quote. Well, the faith once delivered was first drafted in January at a summit for the next Methodism. Scholars allied with the evangelical wing of the United Methodist Church, as well as holiness and Pentecostal denominations, came together. They formed five working groups and co-wrote statements on five theological topics, the nature of God, creation, revelation, salvation, and the church. A sixth section on eschatology, or the fullness of time, was added later. Well, three editors, Wesleyan scholars Ryan Danker and Jonathan Powers and Kevin Watson, revised the final draft of the document. It was published online by the John Wesley Institute on Monday. 
Well, Danker, who is director of the Institute, told Christianity Today that the document is not intended to be polemic or even really original. The hope is to offer a constructive voice that clearly articulates the Wesleyan understanding of Christian orthodoxy. These are faithful Wesleyan scholars who are committed to the faith once delivered to Nicene Christianity, he said. Methodism is entering a period where it's going to need to divide itself again, and this happens any time there's a division. We go back to the scriptures and the church fathers. Well, the United Methodist Church, or UMC, which was um, about 31,000 congregations in the U.S. alone, is currently dividing over LGBT issues. The denomination agreed to a division plan in 2020, but has twice delayed the meeting where that split could occur, citing COVID-19 concerns. Well, in May, some traditionalists decided not to wait anymore and launched the Global Methodist Church. We talked about it at the time. So far, nearly 100 congregations have begun the process of leaving the UMC and joining the GMC. Well, according to Danker, the division stems from the competing understanding of holiness. The traditionalists connect the doctrine to purity and questions of sexual ethics. The progressives connect it to inclusivity and acceptance. Well, the bigger problem from his perspective is the Methodists who've prioritized institutions and organizational structures over everything else. In the middle, you have an institutionalist moderate core who have really lost a vision for holiness, he says. They're interested in creating an umbrella under which various viewpoints can exist in unity and harmony. But what actually unifies is simply having people under the umbrella. Well, the faith once delivered, on the other hand, attempts to bring Christians together around the theological narrative of the rest restoration of the image of God in humankind. It doesn't mention homosexuality and only speaks of marriage once. The document starts with the attributes of God. The subsequent sections spell out how the image was given in creation, but marred by sin, how it was revealed in human history through the incarnation of Christ and the testimony of scripture restored in us through the salvation and sanctification can be lived out in the church and is ultimately glorified in our resurrected unity with Christ. Finish, then, uh, they, uh, thy new creation. Charles Wesley once wrote, Pure and spotless let us be. Let us see thy great salvation perfectly restored in thee. Well, this theological articulation isn't just for Methodists dealing with divisions, according to Pentecostal uh, theologian Dale Coulter. The immediate catalyst of it is uh, what was happening in the UMC. But when we get together, everything was uh, in agreement. We're not writing this to address that. We're writing this in hopes of articulating an orthodox Wesleyan witness. Well, the document was um, released online on Monday. You're welcome to um, to uh, find it there. 62 pages, 64 scholars putting it together to try to define um, orthodox Wesleyanism and ground more Christians in the story of sanctification and restoration through grace. Faith Once Delivered, by the way, is the title of that uh, that document. Well, we are out of time. I hope you will plan to join us here tomorrow, right here on The Georgine Rice Show. First, I want to thank James Blind for producing, Sam Maupin for engineering, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. 
Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.